Hello, everyone. Welcome to Rash's World. Today, we have a very special guest. We have Dr. Andy Norman. How are you doing? I'm quite well. I'm having a very good day. Thank you for oh, asking. That's awesome. That's awesome to hear. Um, now, um, I would like to start off with, as an, in, uh, as an in, um, interview starter, the first question, which is usually the toughest one, and then it gets easier as we go along. How would you briefly describe yourself? Well, I'm going to use, a, uh, use an unfamiliar word to do it, but my new oh. favorite way to answer that question is that I am a cognitive immunologist. Mm -hmm. So that's a, a term of my own coining, and it means that I study the mind through the lens provided by immunology. So if you, when you learn a little bit about immunology, as I've done, you become a dangerous thing, and you, you start to look at the things cognitive scientists have been working on and say, hey... Uh, the science of immunology has some really neat things to contribute to our understanding of the human mind. So that's what I try to do now. You, you might say I'm a cognitive scientist, but I, I, I like to sling the concepts of immunology around because they turn out to be surprisingly useful. Um, and I find it quite intriguing. There's the, the air of mystery around it, too. And your book is uh, Mental Immunity, Infectious Ideas, Mind Parasites, and the Search for a Better Way to Think. And um, reading that, I immediately think of the world we're in, the current state of things. And there's a lot of things that I was like, yes, of course. Uh, so um, how would you briefly define uh, mental immunity? And you, again, your uh, uh, analogy of immunology is quite interesting, but how is it applied to, the, um, to cognition, to thinking and so on? What would you say? Yeah, well, so we all know that where more people vary enormously in how susceptible they are to say conspiracy theories mm -hmm. or to propaganda um, or to, um, shall we say, um, myths and legends, right? So, um, so basically scientists have been thinking more and more about what makes people more or less susceptible to these things. But a long time, our answer was, well, that um, critical thinking is the key to, to non-susceptibility. Well, it turns out that what's passed for critical thinking instruction for about a century doesn't quite add up to, to robust immunity to, to some of the dangerous memes, some of the dangerous ideas that are out there. But if we understand how the mind evolved to, to spot and ignore bad information, and we can figure out how to make those um, mental defenses, if you will, work better, then we can take critical thinking to the next level. So that that's kind of my project in a nutshell. To com uh, compare to a firewall as well, where you kind of like go through and sift through it, and it's like, okay, what what goes through and what gets stopped immediately, and uh, you can train for that. That's correct. That's what you're saying. Exactly. Um, in, in fact, uh, we when when we expose when we take vaccine when we get a vaccine shot. You're actually training your body's immune system to recognize and fight off uh, something that it didn't know how to handle before. Um, we think that there ought to be in forms of instruction or ideas that can do something similar with our mind, that can teach our mind how to spot problematic ideas and fight them off more, more readily. Um, so that the analogy is surprisingly strong, and there's now... Uh, about six decades of research on what's called mind inoculation, psychological inoculation. And now hundreds of studies show that exposing people to the right kind of information can help make them more, uh, exposing people to problematic forms of information with, with suitable kind of safety rails 
can help make them um, immune to even more dangerous versions of those same ideas. So you're preparing them in a way, but again, just like the the vaccine, um, to be ready to to spot that and to find not to be caught unawares or be overwhelmed by it, right? Yeah, the term some of the specialists use is a weakened dose. You know how a vaccine mm -hmm. contains a weakened yeah. dose of, yeah. of the actual uh, virus itself. Um, usually, it's a, a neutered version of that virus. But uh, what we can take we can take a say a false narrative and neuter it and share that with people and people then become immune to other versions of that same false narrative. So here, here's an example. Um, the Biden administration learned that Vladimir Putin was planning to invade Ukraine. And they also learned that Putin was planning to uh, a, a disinformation campaign to make it look as though Ukraine was the ingress aggressor. Instead of sitting on this information, the Biden administration heard about this um, mind inoculation stuff. And they said, what if we got the word out and warned everybody about this false narrative that Putin is going to be trotting out in a few months? They did that. And because um, the term many of us use is pre-bunk. So if you, you know, you can try to debunk something after the after somebody's already gotten the wrong idea. If you try to arrive before the, the bunk and you say, watch out for the bunk, don't fall for it. That's called pre-bunking. And the Biden administration did exactly that for Vladimir Putin's preferred narrative about Ukraine. And it worked. Um, the, the vast bulk of the world didn't fall for Putin's disinformation. It takes it, it, it takes out the element of surprise out of that, out of that action. So you are prepared. And I think we need to be mentally prepared for a lot of things uh, nowadays. But uh, the premise is here that we're rational beings, but we often are not. And what's the role of emotion here? And how does that influence how we go one way or another and what appeals to us as well? Yeah, I like to say we're semi-rational beings at best. Okay. Um, we're, we're on the continuum. We, we, we're capable of being rational, but of course, emotions and other things often prevent us from, almost always prevent us from being fully rational. Mm -hmm. So we're quasi-rational beings. Here's the thing. Um, small changes in the direction of being more rational, mm -hmm. I think, have a long history of dramatically improving mankind, the human condition. They almost said mankind. Boy, that dates me as an old timer who hasn't yet learned gender appropriate language. Humankind. Um, so uh, on my interpretation of the Enlightenment, the period of, of European history where uh, reason and inquiry became very fashionable, mm -hmm. is that that effectively inoculated millions of minds against some of the dangerous superstitions about like witchcraft and so on mm -hmm. that had spread so easily so readily prior to that. Um, now, we didn't become perfectly rational when the Enlightenment came along, but we became five or 10 or 15% more rational and that transformed the world. And I think we can nudge, we can move the needle again, become less, sorry, we can become wiser beings mm -hmm. by simply learning how to uh, modulate our emotions so that our reflective selves, our thoughtful selves, can really do what, what they do best. 
Yeah, so I, I like that. And there, there's uh, one thing I completely agree with you too, is the element of doubt here and talking about doubt. And I, I really like um, how your perspective on that, that it's not a yes or no, true or false matter. It's more like more probable or less likely. And so to make a choice with that. And just to give an example for myself, for the longest mm-hmm. time, we we're told, like, if you believe in, in aliens and so on, you are nuts and crazy and so on. And now we have scientists who are talking about that. I'm very confused about that because I said all this time I was believing something and it turns out to be wrong. So that kind of humility, I think, is important too. like we cannot accept something as as a true fact, basically. But it's kind of some things we can, but we have to be careful with that. Right. Yeah, I, I I think it's okay to accept true facts, but you should never you should never let your certainty go up to a hundred percent, and you should treat everything as provisional and possibly in need of rethinking down the road. Mm-hmm. And and the humility and and the science on this is now very good. The, the attitude of humility is absolutely critical to healthy mm-hmm. thinking, healthy mental immune function, as we like to put it. So if you become overconfident, as many of us are prone to do, yeah. you you act you're, you're you're actually compromising your own ability to to separate fact from fiction. So we all need to be humbled from time to time, to keep to to be to remain really good thinkers. So, um, humility is an absolute essential feature. Open mindedness, curiosity these, yeah. these are the kind of character traits that make for healthy mental immune function, and that help make people resistant or immune to some of the worst ideas out there. But it's a process, right? Every one of us buys into some bad ideas, mm-hmm. and we need to learn how to shed them. Yeah, I, I think the openness is really important too. But I, th- I think one of the issues is I'm I'm kind of curious of why people fall for certain things and why they believe certain things and how ideologies really affect us and our way of thinking of seeing the world. And I think mm-hmm. a lot of it is often related to a form of rigidity so that we want certainty and we don't change that. And I think that's one of the issues for me, a biggest problem of like really like seeing things as they are and being open to another perspective but we're so much stuck in one view and that is and then we color everything with that and that goes actually either way you can be somebody like here a a racist person or an anti-racist person and that happens both of them are kind of often stuck in their ideology and their way of seeing the world and uh, I like the, the term stereotype threat, which uh, I found quite fascinating, is that uh, when a white person and a black person or color person would meet, there is that immediate tension there. It's like, well, I don't want to be perceived as that. You don't want to be perceived as that. So we people get trapped in those stereotypes that they have and ideas about them. And that rigidity can really um, influence their interaction in a, in a negative way, in a biased way. You're absolutely right, Arash. And, and um, I mean, so think about an encounter between a, a, a white person and a person of color. <laughs> One of them's worried about being perceived as a racist. The other might be perce- worried about being perceived as an anti-racist or, yeah. or however it is. Yeah. Um, the more suspicious and on edge we become, the easier it is to, to, to not think straight. In other words, good thinking happens when people feel safe around other, when they when they feel like they can trust the person they're talking to. Mm-hmm. So trust and a kind of a collaborative 
mindset are absolutely critical to successful thinking, right? Think about all of the conspiracy theorists who become so distrustful of the mainstream media <laughs> or yeah. um, big pharma that yeah. they um, that they can't think straight any longer, yeah. right? You can be too suspicious for your own good. Yeah. Now, you can certainly be too trusting for your yeah, own good as well. But you're absolutely right. The, the key to this, I think, is in many ways being able to live with uncertainty and intermediate levels of confidence. The world is not black and white. Um, and I'm not referring here to races here. I'm referring to uh, truth and falsehood. Um, there are many... Rationality often requires us to hold intermediate levels of confidence. Instead of saying, oh, yes, that's absolutely true. Say, you know what? The more I think about it, I'm about 89% sure that that's true. But, you know, who knows? I, I might be misinformed. Yeah. That's the right. The best thinkers in the world think in grayscale rather than black and white. And they nudge their confidence levels up or down as new information comes in. Yeah, that openness is important. And I like how we start, talk about Goldilocks zone. I mean, that's it. Because if you believe every conspiracy theory, you're in trouble. If you don't believe any, you're in trouble too. Because we don't want to go to extremes either way. <laughs> Perfect example. That's right. So you can be too suspicious of conspiracy hypothesis. Let's call it. They're responsible thinkers can entertain the hypothesis that people might be conspiring. Because sometimes people do conspire and you have to look into that and, and understand it if it's true. The problem happens when your whole thinking becomes conspiratorially minded. So you become so suspicious that it's like your, your doubts are on a hair trigger. So doubts are important, but they can run, can spiral out of control. And, and there are, in other words, autoimmune disorders of the mind, just as there are immune deficiencies of the mind. See, doubts are our, our mind's antibodies, mm -hmm. and we need to cherish them and welcome them and respect them and learn from them, but not let them uh, attack our own minds. And that's the thing with media, too. And as you were saying, so we have this impression that media makes mistakes because it's run by people and they make mistakes and that happens. But it's not because you made one mistake. It's like you're everything is false. Right. That kind of like jump to like a generalization, I think, is an issue. And if you had an, a negative encounter with one individual who is of a certain race or color and so on, it doesn't mean that it applies to everyone. So I think that is really a problem because we tend to generalize and our thinking is really rigid in that sense. Absolutely. And learn it, learning how few generalizations are really true. Like I have a friend, a philosopher who, who basically said all generalizations are false or something like that. I, mean, I would disagree with that, but yeah. Well, well yeah. <laughs> yeah. He, I mean, he, his tongue was in his cheek. He, he, right. he was, he yeah. was joking in part because it undermines itself. Right. Cause yes, it is of course. a generalization. Yeah. That's a generalization. Um, actually, the way he put it was all universal generalizations. Like if you ever say always, yeah, never, it's probably, there may well be exceptions. So mm -hmm. um, so be careful with generalizations. Be careful with stereotypes, right? They almost always mislead, even if they seem useful or if they seem right. 
Um, and you, and you used always, by the way. By the way, you used always, right? I did almost uh, always. Yeah, I have it oh, I, Almost, I, I, I used almost. I said almost. Right, okay, actually, almost. Yeah, that's right. That's right. But that's true too. When I say I'm, I'm always on time, and then the next day something happens and I'm late, and it says that kind of that hundred percent thing, or never. I would never do this, and we fall into certain situations where we do end up doing that. So be being cautious with that. I, I, I really think is. Necessary, and I would say, uh, be, be careful with also the words we we emit, right? I think that kind of that makes a huge difference too. If you say these people always do this, I was like, well, just tone it down. It's like it's been your experience. It's not all of them. It's not everyone, right? And to to tone it down a bit, I think that's important. Well, and because if you run around making overgeneralizations out loud in your mm -hmm. words, um, other people can pick up those ideas and become biased or um, uh, develop false and problematic ideas too. So uh, I mean, one of the really interesting aspects of our work is it turns out that conversation is the kind of the crucible within which good thinking is formed. Mm -hmm. if, if you have lots of friends who question your beliefs in a gent gentle, friendly way, you actually learn from their example to test ideas with questions and double check them before you spread them to others. Um, so, so much of good thinking is formed in, in social conversation. And then you would just internalize it into your own mind. And when you, when you talk to yourself in your own mind, you listen to all those voices that say, hang on a second here. I'm not so sure about that. Don't be too the act of saying it out loud to another person, I realized that, like, wait a minute, this is not a good idea at all, right? Just kind of that perception. But when you're thinking about it in your in your echo chamber and you think like, okay, well, and others who agree with you on extreme points, then you you get trapped in that. And I think that's an issue yeah. I have with cancel culture where you like try to eliminate the descending voice and say, no, listen to that because open dialogue involves everyone. Especially, right. especially people disagree with you. I love talking with them. I actually right. seek them out because I think it's an interesting way of really uh, uh, fostering and building and promoting critical thinking in that way. Beautiful, Arash. I, I think that's right. I, I try to remind myself whenever somebody says something that I don't like, I try to remind myself, okay, maybe they're, maybe they're trying to help me see one of my own blind spot. Like maybe they can see something I don't. So calm, calm myself down. Don't get defensive. Actually, learning how not to become defensive when other people raise challenging That's questions that was one of the most important That's lessons difficult. I think I've ever yeah. had in my life. Um, because you can't learn from other people if you get defensive really fast. Mm -hmm. um, so because you're not listening to them. Because you're thinking about yourself, right? And then you actually did not hear them. And you don't know what they say. And yeah. just to test that, though... Um, I, I disagree slightly, or perhaps disagree with uh, certain things like intuition, for example, and my perception of intuition. I think intuition often overrides rational thinking, and the decisions I've made that came from my deep from my intuition were logically the worst outcome or answer, but it was the best one. And so I have that feeling, and when that when I hear that, even if it goes against reason, I still follow it. But again, it doesn't mean that every emotion is like that. I mean, these are like specific right. ones. And I kind of, I think I know the difference and I've been able to discriminate against that. But I think that's an issue because in psychology, intuition is not really endorsed in that sense. 
Yeah, it's true that a lot of cognitive scientists are suspicious of intuitions. Yeah. And it's also true that people who are, are characterized as intuitive thinkers often make have biases and, and make mistakes mm -hmm. of that more reflective people more don't make. All of that's true. But I think the conversation needs to be enriched in the following way. There's a difference between kind of uh, knee-jerk intuition and educated intuition. Yeah. When you take in information and really let it change the way you feel about things, mm -hmm. then then your intuitions get better, get more reliable. Sure. So in domains where you where you develop deep expertise and you really sort through all of the arguments on all sides and really learn to navigate it, your intuitions start to take the shape of reality and then they can be trusted more fully. But if you haven't gone through that very difficult process of, yeah, of having yeah. lots of people take pot shots at your ideas, um, then you should take your intuitions with a grain of salt, or yeah. at least um, use a little experimentation. See whether your intuitions in a certain domain. But so, when it comes to, uh, I don't know, picking up girls, my intuitions are terrible, right? But when it comes to yeah. certain aspects <laughs> on. Uh, uh, of psychology, my intuitions do a pretty decent job. Yeah. So I, I think the the experts on this need to start distinguishing between different kinds of intuition. Exactly. Definitely. And when they do, they're going to recognize that, yes, you are right. Along with Malcolm Gladwell, who has a whole book about how intuitions can be better than our more. Yeah, exactly. But I think than. it's like the problem is with thinking is just your head. Whereas like a gut feeling is your body and it's like the whole body. So in that sense, it's kind of like uh, counter like intuitive <laughs> to use that term to go with the head, which doesn't really know what goes on in the rest of the body. So I think if really like finding a balance between the two, it's not all just pure intuition and just like, and that's the idea of like freedom people have nowadays, like, oh, I can say whatever I want and do whatever I want. That's not freedom. That's not freedom. That's, uh, that's your right. perception of it, but that's, that's, that doesn't work. Freedom yes. is to be free of uh, being driven in a certain way, free to decide, to choose. And I think the more we have that, the better our choices will be. But we're often driven in many, and I believe in unconscious processes that drive us in a certain direction. But once you uncover that, just going back to the pre-bunking, I think that's amazing because once you uncover that, it's like, hey, no, I'm not going to go there because that is not what I really want to do. Does that make sense? Yeah, I, I can tell you're a philosopher, a fellow philosopher, Arash, and that's wonderful. Um, and you're thinking about, you know, what what, what is real freedom? Yeah. And involved? what is free will too? And that's a, a what is free will? Debate. These are very deep questions, right? Yeah. But I love I love the gist of what you're saying here because I think it's exactly right. Some people have a very superficial concept of freedom where they get to do whatever they want, mm -hmm. but more thoughtful thinkers have often pointed out that if you indulge your every want. Mm -hmm. your wants grow bigger and more insistent and eventually you become you can become a, a slave to them yes yeah so just as you just as nobody likes to be told that they can't have what they want no, nobody likes th that kind of impingement on their freedom you also true freedom comes with understanding that your own desires and passions can themselves compromise your freedom in various ways mm -hmm. you need to learn to restrain your own feelings and sometimes your own intuitions in order to become truly free that's a deeper trickier concept of freedom but i'm all 
all in on trying to promote that concept of freedom with you. Yeah, and, and, and again, the absolute thing, I mean, just again, that philosophy is my thing too. So a free will, people think of it absolutely. I can do whatever I want. I can be whoever I want. I, I think, no, that's not it. And that's not my idea of free will. Free will is for me to be able to be free enough to choose within a certain limit, within a context. It doesn't mean I can be and do anything I want. And that's what I have a problem with, with when we, we talk about self-help. And that's what they say. You can be whoever you want to be. I think you can only be yourself, essentially. And okay. that is that is quite amazing if you can do that. But it, it takes a lot of work, too. But you cannot be someone else. And that is a problem because we're driven towards that. Be the best version of yourself. And it's like, well, if I'm myself, that is the best version. There is no other version of it. So I, I get confused with that often. <laughs> yeah, these questions about personal identity and free will are, are actually they're they're above my pay, pay grade <laughs> there are better philosophers who think much more deeply about this stuff than i do but uh it's fascinating to play with those i like to also look at empathy though i think that's sometimes often missing too when we lose empathy and with other mm -hmm. groups because with the us versus them the, the, them is always wrong and we always dislike them or see them in a, in a negative light and I, I find if we can connect through that and through finding things that we have in common, I, I know one example where uh, an indigenous uh, advocate was talking to the judge who voted against their ruling here in Canada. And he, he was nervous about meeting that person over lunch. He's like, well, I, I hate this guy. right? And uh, he's probably thinking the same thing. I don't like this guy either. But then when they talked about it, they talked to each other. They found out both of them like Shakespeare. And they had something in common. And suddenly their perception of each other changed. And each of they liked each other in a certain way. They disagreed, of course, but there was yeah. a common link between them. And if we don't have open dialogue, if we don't open up to others, if we don't talk to them, if we don't look for those uh, common things, um, we miss out on a true connection, I think. Absolutely. And in fact, there's some wonderful experiments where... Um... You, you get a, a red a Republican voter and a Democratic voter who would normally not see eye to eye. You get them to sit down and just collaborate on, you know, building a, you know, a simple Ikea cabinet or something. And at the end of that, you have them talk politics. And, and it's a totally different conversation because they suddenly realize that, hey, we can work together. We, we, we've collaborated in the past and it works. And I, I know how to listen to this guy now and, and learn from them. So the fact that we're... And I think empathy is part of that. Mm -hmm. um, I also think that I, I've read some really interesting stuff suggesting that empathy, that in some cases it's better to have compassion than empathy. Okay. Those may sound like the same thing, um, but there are actually some good reasons to distinguish them as it turns out. So think about the person who um, has an empathic response to a particular hungry kid and immediately um, provides a meal for that hungry kid yeah. wonderful thing this is this is a, the example i'm putting together is, is going to fail utterly here because this this is too clumsy but um sometimes if you add reason and a little reflection to empathy sometimes it comes out the other end as compassion that can actually do more good than empathy all, all by itself can do. Yeah, that's actually, I have a term for that, which I call full empathy, 
like false empathy. And, and I think that exists too, because if, if you're showing empathy for people who, again, for different reasons are in the situation they're in, or even like hardened criminals and so on, I don't think that helps us. I don't think that helps society too, because if you give them a free pass, it's like, well, it doesn't matter. Uh, yeah, you can go again. You can be liberated because we support you, but they, they don't deserve it in a sense. And that feels hard for them to accept, right? And so that that's example shows empathy that, in my view. Yeah. Right. So yeah. that example shows that you, you can take empathy too far. Right. Yes, yes, exactly. Um, and, and I agree that, that that's right. So compassion is in some ways a more modulated kind of spell of feeling mm -hmm. that, uh, in, in fact, there's a good reason why many Zen Buddhists um, practice com compassion meditation or something. They, they, they've thought about this enough to know that compassion is, is the deeply, is almost always morally right. And I just look at the terms, though. So they, they, because I'm thinking of Nietzsche, perhaps empathy, feeling with the others, whereas compassion is suffering with them, and passion is suffering. So that I disagree with because I don't think we need to suffer with them, but I feel for them. So my point is more towards empathy than compassion, because if you go through those processes too, you're you're suffering yourself with them, which I think is is an issue, is a problem. <laughs> Um, you make a good point, and I might have to rethink my usages of these two terms. Okay. So, uh, I'll, uh, I, I'm gonna, I promise to do some rethinking. Wonderful, cool, and great. Yeah, but this is, that's openness. That's wonderful. I, I really, I'm really enjoying this conversation. And I want to also talk about AI, though. I think that's um, people see it as a threat, and I think they're exaggerating, but people don't see it as a threat, and they're exaggerating too. So, what should we watch out for? Free bankers on, uh, on AI. <laughs> I, I wish I had an easy way to pre-bunk against all of the AI-driven nonsense we're, we're going right. to face in this, even in the coming year, 2024. Um, yeah, I think people are right to be concerned. Um, it's a very powerful technology. These large language model AIs, gener generative AIs are extremely powerful and they're, they're a real game changer. And there's going to be a lot of dislocation. There's going to be a lot of disruption. Um, and we, we need to start thinking now about how we can adapt to this. I think one of the most pressing problems is the use of AI to mislead people um, by disinformers, by propagandists. Yeah. I think uh, just on, on the short-term horizon, we all need to be aware that we're likely to see fake videos, um, um, fake photographs, um, trying to make some of the candidates for public office look to, to, to misportray, to, um, what are they called? Deep fakes, right? Deep fake. you, you can create deep fake videos right now that make that are almost impossible to distinguish by the naked eye and that make people look extremely bad. Technologies like that will almost surely be used to bad political ends in the coming years and we beware don't fall for it don't be a sucker right so there's my attempt to pre-bunk against uh 2024 election disinformation yeah. um and and beware that artificial intelligence hands unprecedented deceptive power to lots of bad actors out there and if you're going to keep your autonomy, if you're going to keep remain a free thinker, somebody who thinks for yourself rather than just be manipulated by others, you need to be really careful about believing 
what you even what you see on online just because you you see it on a video does not mean it's true it doesn't feel right too in some ways where there's an element of doubt where it doesn't feel right something is off right and i think for me that that can help but it's really tough it's i mean even experts find it a hard time to distinguish between the actual thing and and uh, uh the, the fake one and i think that is really dangerous well well many deep fakes to date have are, are somewhat clumsy or, or clumsy around the edges or have slight imperfections mm -hmm. and that can trigger doubts Mm -hmm. about the genuineness of the video and we should listen to those doubts because often those deep fakes are are in fact fakes but as the technology gets better and better the imperfections will will go away and uh, we still need to protect our minds and and the deliberate choice not to believe it just because somebody said so or just because you saw it on a youtube <laughs> video you, you need to remind yourself that your credulity your attention your um your belief are more precious than that don't give them away too easily mm -hmm. that, that goes again also with technology when we look at the internet because what happens is it's so easy to find like-minded people nowadays if like fringe ideas where you thought oh i thought i was the only one that thought who thought that the earth is flat and there's a whole group that thinks that right and before it wasn't like this because you go outside and you tell people in social context, as you're saying, you tell like people around you, they're like, what are you talking about? This is completely nuts, bunkers. But <laughs> nowadays you find your groups. You can find pretty much any group, any conspiracy theory. So yeah. um, technology is kind of adding to that, to the polarization and so on. What should we do? What should we watch out for there? Yeah. So um, what you see on YouTube when you go there, for example, um, so if you watch a few videos on YouTube, YouTube will start recommending other videos to you. And what's driving that process is called an algorithm. And the algorithm is actually been refined over years and years, over hundreds of data points to maximize your engagement, what they, what they call engagement, which means that if they can fascinate you enough to spend lots of time on YouTube, they can sell your attention to advertisers. It's a form of manipulation that's insidious because you just think, oh, it's feeding me fun cat videos and I just wasted an hour on YouTube. What's insidious about that? Cat videos are fun. Well, not so much when it's sucking you down a conspiracy rabbit hole, yeah. right? Cat, cat videos may be relatively harmless apart from their ability to waste an hour of your precious life. But um, turns out many people who fell for, say, QAnon <laughs> were driven there by a, an by algorithms that ra gradually gradually radicalize them step by step by step, the same way and, we, we you can do it with by like, protecting yourself. They can they use the same method like immunology, right? So by slowly feeding them and then uh, taking them down the rabbit hole, that's exactly the same uh, method that they're using. Yeah, you're acclimating people to <laughs> crazier and crazier ideas so that they seem less crazy. That's right. You you, you can do that. Um, and. So yes, there are bad actors out there who are using some of the same psychological insights that the scientists are now trying to use to keep us safer. Mm -hmm. um, and and I shudder to think about, you know, some big big brotherly government trying to use some of these these techniques to brainwash people. That that's a future we all have to work to prevent. But that doesn't mean we should just let mis and dis mis and disinformers run rampant. Right, um, they're a threat to our freedom as well, and 
um, there's there's a real case to be made for not giving bullhorns to the wackiest, um, most peddlers of of pernicious ideas, right? I mean, do you really want? Do you really think it's okay? This is a rhetorical question to a, a supposed free speech absolutist. Would it really be okay uh, for somebody with a bullhorn to start calling for the elimination of your race? No, you would have an issue with that. Um, so not all speech should be permitted. Um, with rights come responsibilities and with speech rights come speech responsibilities. And if you don't follow basic norms of accountable talk, like having evidence for what you say, good evidence, reliable evidence, then arguably you deserve a smaller bullhorn at the very least. Yeah. And this is this is something we're seeing currently. I mean, that just like, you know, rings a bell for me. And absolutely. And especially people in position who have the authority, they have to be very careful of how they frame things. And I think people are more more uh, scared of microaggression and so on that you talk about than actual like calling for genocide, which I find uh, uh, mind boggling to say the least from people who should know better. I, I agree. I mean, there there are some cancel culture radical leftists who are a threat to things we value, yeah. but I think the threat they pose is very small compared to the authoritarian uh, right wing that is threatening some of our absolutely foundational uh premises of our of our democracy and our free society i to me the the, the threat is is very asymmetrical shall we say which just doesn't mean it's okay to cancel people uh in the in the for the cause of wokeness i'm, I'm not a big fan of that use of, of of that kind of treatment of people but we certainly don't um, need uh, an authoritarian in the White House. Absolutely, yeah. And I think just also finding out why when something goes viral, it simply means that people engage with it. Now, whether negatively or positively, right? So if we look at it from that perspective, something goes viral because it touches people's nerves or, or gets on their nerves and so on. So you have to be very careful with that. And so that drives the algorithm. But I don't think algorithm is something that intentionally chooses things. It doesn't have the capacity, or, or unless it's programmed that way. So that would be a different thing, which I, well, I don't know about, you know. <laughs> yeah, I mean, so... I don't think that anybody at YouTube is intentionally trying to radicalize people, mm -hmm. yeah. but in the service of generating revenue for YouTube, which is an, a subsidiary of Google, um, in the service of that end, um, they've just found through trial and error, blind, mindless trial and error, that radicalizing content keeps people glued to their screens more. Um, and, and nobody nobody designed that in. That was simply a result of a machine algorithm evolving in the direction of padding Google's balance sheet under the curation of a bunch of engineers. Um, so you, you don't need uh, evil intent to do evil. <laughs> to, yeah. To, yeah. And then Google does say, don't be evil, but uh, yeah. there you go, yeah. And they somehow seem to have done some very evil things inadvertently and that's why we need people to study these algorithms to study the dynamics of misinformation and to begin to erect guardrails around 
you know, civil discourse. Nobody wants to infringe on people's speech rights, mm -hmm. but but we need to keep an information environment that's healthy and that um, doesn't radicalize people. Because when people are radicalized, they don't think straight. Um, they 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 lose their ability to be good citizens, and um, it's morally disorienting to be radicalized, right? And none of us wants that. We want to, we want our neighbors to be morally centered and tolerant. So we need to build an information environment that that cultivates those things. Completely agree. So uh, I want to talk about the Mental Immunity Project. Uh, let's talk about that because that is a, a solution to a lot of these things that we're talking about. I'm so glad you asked, Dirash. Um, yeah, uh, my uh, my colleagues and I have taken the science of mental immunity and we've uh, used it to inform what we call the the very first of its kind guide to mental immune system care. This is a way to boost your own resistance to nonsense of all kinds. So we've, we've basically uh, codified some of the tips and tricks the world's wisest people have always used, checked them against the, the science that's been coming out in recent decades and formulated 10 simple principles that anyone can use to improve their thinking. Um, these are rules like um, mind your emotions and keep track of, of what your motives are for believing things and uh, embrace shades of gray thinking. Very simple rules. And we've covered, touched on a few of them yes, here we today, did. right? Yeah. Um, but you can learn them all uh, uh, in, in short, engaging videos, short, engaging <laughs> videos cool. that might even go viral. <laughs> Let's hope so. I mean, good yeah, things should yeah. go viral too. Yeah. <laughs> you got to fight fire with fire. You got to fight bad memes with good memes. Yes. Good. Um, so I, I encourage your listeners to go to mentalimmunityproject.org. Mm -hmm where they can learn all about this fascinating new science and and you don't have to geek out too much about it. You don't have to care so much about the science if you just wanna know what's what do I need to know to act differently? Mm -hmm. What do I need to do to protect myself and my kids and the people I care about? You can go straight to the how-to page and and learn a lot in a very little time. And if, if your time is precious and you don't have a, a ton of time to rethink how you think things, I, I think this is one of the best resources online to level up your thinking. Well, well, I learned a lot in a short amount of time. Thank you so much for this wonderful discussion, uh, Dr. Andy Norman. Uh, you're, I have your author, researcher, and a public philosopher. I like that term, public philosopher. <laughs> and your book is Mental Immunity, Infectious Ideas, Mind Parasites, and the Search for a Better Way to Think. Thank you so much for being on Arash's World. Such a pleasure. It's It's been my pleasure too, Arash. Thank you. <laughs>